This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. I'm pleased to say this week we've got Andy Bell, the Chief Executive of AJ Bell with us. Hi Dan. Hi. So this week we're going to talk about the thorny issue of Best Buy lists, a new book that tells you how to find financial happiness, what we still use the postal system for and what a credit desert is. So Andy, you do a lot of talking to the government and regulators in your role. What are the big things that you're discussing with them at the moment? Yeah, all, all the campaigns that, that we're running really have got I've got two themes at the heart of them. It's, it's, it's firstly fairness and secondly simplicity, I think our general view. And it's not about us you know, trying to create an environment that suits our customers. It's, it's really born out of the fact that if, if the rules are simple and the rules are fair, people are more likely to invest for the future, which I think would be a yeah, good benefit for everyone. So the two, the two main angles we're looking at at the moment is is really our long-running campaign for simplification of pensions um, and by that it's really scrapping the lifetime allowance time's moved on now uh, since the lifetime allowance was was introduced and in 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 the dc world or defined contribution world sit world call it what you will uh, you just don't need a lifetime allowance going forward just the annual allowance where there's a limit on how much people can pay into the pensions a simple limit at the moment we have three annual allowances uh, we have one lifetime allowance a whole range of protection measures in place you know it really is very complicated a simple single lifetime allowance on how much people can pay into the pension every year uh, is 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 all that we really need we acknowledge that on the defined benefit side, it probably needs to be governed by a lifetime allowance and then focus on how you deal with concurrency where people are, are members of both types of schemes and how you transfer. But that's almost for another day. I think if people just think about the simplicity of that and and, and yeah, that will be a, you know, a, a fairer basis as well. I think the second area of that, and again, along the same lines, is in the ISA market. We've now grown up to the point we've got, depending how you define it, we've got six or seven different ISA regimes. Um, we need to reduce that to one, maybe two, if, if, if the lifetime ISA structure where there's a government bonus is going to carry on. Um, it seems to be a, you know, quieting off that. Some of the some of the early demand seems to have fallen away in that market. Uh, but uh, you know, I can see I can see why the government likes the idea of a lifetime ISA. But you know, seven is too many. One or two is 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 about where we should land. And so, how receptive so far have people been to? So we're talking kind of government regulators. Have they been to some of those suggestions? Do you think it's a hard battle to have? Or? I think it's it, it, it's fairly easy winning the the conceptual argument. I think I think like with everyone who's making cases to the regulator, the government, there's only one thing they're looking at at the moment, and it begins with a B, uh, and. and that's what people are looking at, you know, until we get the other side of Brexit. I think a lot of these initiatives that involve resource at the regulator or, or, or the government, I think, unfortunately, are going are gonna to be on a back burner. But it, I'm very comfortable with that. I think it's about winning the argument first and then, you know, taking your place in the, in the line for resources. I'd be very comfortable if we could all agree that simplicity is needed in that market. And I, and I don't find too many people disagreeing when I talk to them about, about what I put forward. It is the, it's the practicalities of implement, implementation that really are, are, the, are the key. Okay, so another big issue in the market at the moment is the suspension of the Woodford Equity Income Fund um, and also how that has featured on Best Buy lists. Um, so Hargreaves has come under fire because they kept Woodford on their Best Buy list. But what, what's your sort of view on this, Andy, in terms of you know, the role of the Best Buy list and how helpful it is to someone? 
yeah, I think it's not it's not for me to comment on on Woodford's role and and uh, and Hargreaves' role in this. I think that I've, I've known Neil for a number of years, and all I can say is a is a true gent and a real professional. And I've I've known people at Hargreaves for a long time, and they're a very good business. And both together have made people a lot of money over the years. So it's very easy to to kick people on individual circumstances. What what? But yeah, I do recognise both both firms will come out and will almost certainly learn something from the back of this. But I think for me, the the more important issue is the future of guidance. I think this is what this whole issue gets to. Uh, it will be a real shame if we end up throwing the baby out with the bath with the bathwater. We've got Best Buy lists are, are a feature and probably the dominant feature of uh, of guidance in in the execution only market. And I think we'd all recognise that there's actually a still a large advice gap following on from RDR back in 2014. We've you know there's a lot of people who just aren't in a position for whatever reason to get financial advice. I think we'd all acknowledge that if they could get financial advice, they should. But there's an awful lot of people who are not in a position to do that, uh, and therefore they need a solution. And if there's no guidance, these people either you come onto sites like ours or Hargreaves or others and just start pressing buttons and buying things without any any research. Or uh, they, they either just do nothing is, is the alternative. And I think the, the real benefit of guidance is for the, for the real mass market of people who have got a desire to do something, aren't massively financially literate. They will look to a guidance solution to say, please help me out. Now, I absolutely agree there needs to be integrity behind these solutions. They can't be commercially influenced. They need to be proper research. You know, if your butcher's put up a list of Best Buy funds in his window, you wouldn't take it seriously. So if an investment firm's going to do it, you've got to believe and know there is some credibility behind it. There's some integrity behind the process that actually drives it forward. And I think that, you know, we've. I think the regulators' thinking should be along the lines of, you know, let's not sort of stop this happening. Let's actually make sure there's a proper process behind it, and actually let's embrace the the benefits that guidance brings. And for me, I've been saying for a while the the, the regulator needs to loosen the reins on guidance, not tighten them. I do fear that this this episode will their natural reaction will be to pull the horse back, and I don't think they should be doing that. We should be just looking to see how guidance can help deal with that very real advice gap in the UK. And is there something that, um, you know, if it was a looser sort of uh, backdrop, what, what could platforms do in terms of non-advised, non-advised guidance then? Well, I think there's lots of things they can do because once a, once a customer's got a portfolio together, then um, the, the platform knows an awful lot of data about that customer. And so if you know, it might be as simple as if, if, the, if the customer's got a, a fund uh, where the fund manager leaves or uh, the charges change or the performance deteriorates, uh, we have abilities, you know, x-ray tools to go in and, and really parcel funds up together and say these funds actually are doing very, very similar things, but there's a real discrepancy on charges. Um, for me, it seems a natural extension to our service, say to our customers, look, you're holding this fund, but really wouldn't it make more sense if you looked at this fund instead? the regulator's natural reaction to that and the current stance is that is straying into the world of giving a personal recommendation, which we don't want to do. Lots of our peers in our situation don't want to do. We don't want to be an advisor. We want to help customers. Uh, we're not seeking to charge for it. We want it recognised that it's not advice, but it is guidance with some with some integrity and, and, and credibility behind it. And I think it's that personalised investment support that we can give people as well as actually um and also it goes on to onto ready-made portfolios we've just launched a ready-made portfolio service where it's beyond the best buy list now it's actually putting together a, a portfolio of funds that wouldn't look massively different to what an advisor would put together probably a bit bit slimmed down but it, it it's looking at the risk profile of of the customer 
Again, a big challenge we've got is we try and find more information about the customer's risk appetite or their goals or why they're investing. And unfortunately, we very quickly stray into the personal recommendation world again. So they're the sort of areas I'd be nudging the FCA just to step back and think about, you know, if we just relax the rules a little bit in this area, making it clear to the customer exactly what they're getting uh, as part of the deal. But I, I, I do think there's, there's some real wins could be had um, by by looking at this area and, and, and taking it forward as, a, yeah, as an industry, not, not just AJ Bell. So I think everyone in the industry is um, interested to see what the regulator is going to do next on that. So, Dan, you've been very excited about a new book that aims to change all of our views on money. So it's teaching us how to overhaul our finances, but also how to feel happy about it. That's right. It's a book by Ken Honda called Happy Money. Um, I read a, I read a bit about it in the papers the other day, and I thought it sounded pretty interesting. I don't normally sort of read um, books by sort of self-help gurus but this one I thought it's quite interesting so I I went out and bought it and thought could it help could it help me or or could we could it sort of use it as a sort of a platform to um, look at how the the relationship we have with our money and how ultimately how to make peace with our wallet it sounds a bit strange isn't it so this does sound a bit odd yeah so the, the, the book's sort of talking about two kinds of money happy money and unhappy money so Laura what do you reckon you could define what what do you think the differences are between those two so unhappy money is um paying really boring bills each month that i don't really see any value from yeah happy money is a round of beers on a friday night i think so yeah I mean, it could, it's quite a broad definition that um the book's sort of implying the money you might use to buy flowers for your mum um, you know, if you're a fitness fan, you might want to buy a new bike or maybe it's sort of saving up so your kids can go to a sort of football club at the weekend. So it's, it's kind of... They all sound uh, more meaningful than buying beers on a Friday night. I feel yeah. like I've been slightly shamed now. But, but no, I don't think so. I think it, 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 it's... A, a big part of it is is giving money to people. We're not, not particularly gifting, but being being generous um, and making others happy as well as you. So I think, you know, surely if someone bought me a beer on a Friday night, I would be happy. And I'm sure if I bought some else, you know, it's sort of sharing this um, kind heartedness, isn't it? So the, the, the book is about saying you should really embrace happy money. So rejoice when you receive money and help others. Uh, and, and when you're spending money, perhaps don't feel guilty all the time. I think it's kind of sort of trying to say that if there's something that will help you or make you feel happy and uh, you'll get a benefit from that shouldn't be a bad thing. Shouldn't feel regret, I think. That's got to have a, a limit to it, though, surely. Because I definitely get that premise that if you're going to spend money on yourself, you should enjoy that and not feel bad for it. But you can't go around with that mentality all the time. Otherwise, you'd be permanently broke, wouldn't you? No, that's true. And I think it's all about understanding um, not not sort of having too much stuff. Do you really, really need everything? But um, so think about the purchases that you make. Do you need them? But, you know, if they make you happy, that's that could be a good thing. But, um, you know, buying, I don't know, 10 pairs of trousers every single weekend. That's, you know, that's a difference between. <laughs> Pretty weird example. <laughs> yeah, there. You know, that's but probably, an insight into your shopping habits. Well, it's, it's not me, but um, <laughs> that's probably a bit excessive. But I think that the book is about getting your head in the right place, um, trying to think about the present and not worrying about the future or the past when it comes to money and it discusses the relationships you might have had with your parents or, or even the grandparents and picking up their money habits and that not necessarily um the habits you pick up if they if they're not good that doesn't 
that's not necessarily a bad thing for you because you, you should be able to challenge it and say that I'm going to make my life a little bit different. So you, you can see that, you know, the self-help um, author, uh, you can see his style all the way through the book. But I, I think it is, it does provoke some interesting, interesting points in there. It's certainly arguing that if, if your mind's not free, you cannot buy the freedom for your money. I mean, it's probably quite heavy stuff, oh isn't God, it? God, that <laughs> is a bit. I was kind of with you until that point. I think there's some interesting points in that, though. I um, listened to, I went to a conference the other day and listened to a financial advisor called Catherine Morgan speaking, and she was talking about how financial advisors need to make a kind of more emotional connection with their clients but also understand people's history with money and their family history with money to truly understand how they deal with money now and I think there's definitely some truth in that in how you're brought up and your parents attitude to money will whether you realize it or not affect your own attitudes to money. I think so. And just being aware of, um, you know, what is your attitude to money? Uh, some people don't probably don't even think about it too much. Um, but I think in the, in the book, it's got this Zen approach to happiness. Um, think in terms of who, of who you are, not, not what you've got. Um, and th there's some interesting points there. So talking about money IQ and uh, money EQ. So this is the idea of um, the money IQ is financial intelligence, which you might learn by um, understanding sort of monetary knowledge and investing in tax. And EQ is sort of how you react emotionally to money. They say that's that's much more important, it's your, your emotional reaction than than your knowledge. Um, but really, that's what I'm saying. If you, if you can sort of focus on the happiness and try and um, do nice things for other people and constantly say thank you. They talk about this arigato um, in the Japanese word for, have I pronounced that correctly? I don't know. Yeah. It sounded a bit um, Italian the way yeah. you said it. But. <laughs> <Arigato>. <laughs> the, the, you know, the Japanese word for thank you. So you, know, you should really appreciate people um, and particularly, you know, if you enjoy life and you're more approachable, then that really sort of rubs off on other people and it can have this sort of a, a bigger impact on people's lives. So um, the author, Ken Honda was saying, if everyone t taps into the idea of happy money, um, then you know, potentially you can get wealthy people could share a bigger percentage of what they got with less fortunate people. The middle class might take more risks and start doing what they love. And people with financial difficulties will feel potentially more secure or more hope for the future because they might have this support from the wealthier classes. And the knock-on effect could be less fighting in families, less crime and more peace in society. I mean, these are sort of quite bold. These are quite big leaps yes. being made. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's what, what the, the, the sort of the author hopes will happen in the world. I and mean, obviously that is a big leap, isn't it? But um, That's a nice idea. And I, I was looking at some kind of on the point of... Um, richer people helping people out more. I was looking at um, charity giving statistics recently because that's how I spent my Friday nights. <laughs> and um, it was showing that fewer people are giving more money. So more money overall is being given to charity, but it's coming from a smaller pool. So mm. the number of people willing to kind of give some of their money away is shrinking slightly. So I guess some of his ethos might help solve that. More people might be willing to give. Yeah, I mean, he does talk about charity a lot in the book saying, you know, e even if it's like, um, just a really small amount of money to a charity, it makes a difference. But he also makes the um, suggestion that, say you're having, um, you, you're paying for some service, it could be like a builder or something like that, uh, pay a bit more than they've asked you to because no one will expect it. Um, and it's a sort of sign of gratitude if they've done a good job. Um, and you shouldn't, you know, should really um, think about, you know, you, you're trying to rub off this, this happiness 
uh, on other people as well. I feel like Ken Honda has now lost yeah. me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> as someone who's looking down the barrel of building work, I'm not sure I would yeah. ever voluntarily pay over the odds just because someone wasn't expecting yeah. it. He also talks about um, little things for colleagues at work. So like go, go and um, go and buy them a cup of tea if they think that they're looking sad or and it's, just, it's just it's the little things that count so even uh, I don't know we'll see I you're mean, trying it, to get me to buy you a cup of tea aren't yes, you yes please yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, interesting it, ideas and I guess also the the idea with these books is you don't necessarily have to agree with all of the points it's just if it provokes thoughts in you or if you like some parts of it then it's probably still worthwhile isn't it no absolutely and so I've, I, I'm going to do a bit of happiness um, and give to someone else and offer would someone like my my copy of happy money it's got a small bit of red ink on the corner and it has been read but and if, if anyone does fancy a copy just email us at podcast ajbell.co.uk i'll just draw a name out of the hat i'm happy to pass it on and see see what you think and you know and if you've got any sort of feedback or, or if you've read the book send us a line and um and perhaps we can sort of talk about some of the comments from readers themselves i like this you're paying it forward also if you're into generous gestures i really like cake so cake mm. okay yeah we'll Give do we'll do cake next week shall we yes. <laughs> and so right so laura you've been looking at a report that came out this week looking at debt issues in the uk um it comes up this term of credit deserts what's that so yeah a think tank has called demos has um looked at the kind of debt landscape of the uk um debt's obviously a rising issue in the UK and we've seen lots of stuff and I think we've spoken before about um, access to credit and the number of people that are living beyond their means Um, and so it looked at the landscape across the UK and found areas that it's termed credit deserts where people struggle to get access to affordable credit but the area has a high need for it so you've essentially got an area where lots of people are borrowing um, particularly on short-term borrowing like payday uh, loans or credit cards Um, but in the area there's not great availability of lower cost credit so you've got areas basically where where high cost payday lenders are kind of preying on for them quite a lucrative bunch of people so where whereabouts in the uk are they sort of the the hot spots for this so it is quite spread out um so and generally tends to be more northern so there's um dundee but that's the only one in scotland there's a few in wales um there's areas like hull lincoln nottingham um and there's a higher propensity of them uh, in the North and Midlands rather than in the southeast. So the figures also look at the kind of availability from different credit providers. So it says that of the seven large high street payday lenders that were active in 2014, so five years ago, only two are still active today um, on the high street. And it's looking at basically the fact that there's been a large shift to online for um, lending, which can then create a more kind of immediate if you don't have to go into a branch and and someone checks stuff over you just need to click online and you can do it any time of the day or night it's kind of giving people more immediate access to this high cost credit and these these sort of providers of um certainly they advertise quite heavily don't they on tv and and trying to get their brand in front of people so um i guess they make people may think that's the much more convenient you know they see the advert and think okay i can that's what i need yeah but it isn't it isn't perhaps the best thing isn't it so it, are, are there other sources of more affordable credit yeah there are and um there are yeah lower lower interest lower cost credit and and outside of these kind of 
credit deserts, as the report calls it. There are area. The opposite of that is kind of credit havens, where there are is low credit needed, and but there's a pre- plethora of affordable credit options. Um, so you've got this kind of mismatch, I guess, between areas where they really need access to credit and actually availability of these low cost options. And what the report's ultimately calling for is for the FCA to do more to crack down on high cost credit. And it's done some stuff around payday loans and it's done some stuff around the rent to buy um, schemes where you say get appliances and you pay a weekly amount or a monthly amount rather than buying it outright. And they tend to have really high interest rates. So the report's kind of highlighting these areas, but also calling for the regulator to do a bit more in that. Yeah, I was wondering if they were calling on local authorities to have a look as well. I don't know whether they've got any any power. But they should certainly should have some interest about this if you've got certain parts. You know, if they're representing part of the UK and there's a high number of people using these sort of very high-cost credit schemes, surely it would be in the interest of, to try and help people. Um, but I guess turning to the, the financial regulators, obviously a natural... Yeah, exactly. And I think also part of the issue um, in some of these uh, credit desert areas is that um, people don't have very good credit scores. So their ability to access some of that lower cost credit um, is slightly impinged because they wouldn't be accepted by those lenders. So they're forced into the higher cost options. But you're right, you would think that there would maybe be more local authorities or governments could do to have um, perhaps some lower cost options or some slightly more ethically backed options. Yeah, I guess they can help them to, you know, there are ways you can improve your credit score, isn't it? You just need to review it. And sometimes people find something on their file, which is a mistake and um, or, or a situation that can be resolved, isn't it? So they can um, you know, potentially boost it that way. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. And so finally, I, I received a press release fairly recently looking at the fact you can get um, sort of quite high interest rates on on cash savings accounts if you used a postal account. And I thought it was quite interesting because uh, no one seems to talk about the post anymore. No, um, that feels quite old school now. We're in the yeah. day, age of kind of digital only, app only banks. Yeah, you know, I, I thought most people would think you've got to go online in order to get the best rates. But this, um, you know, this report says that's not the case. Um, what it actually finds is it's fixed rate bonds are quite um, comparative in terms of online sort of savings accounts. So you, you certainly need to go online if you want to have easy access savings accounts where you can just get the money whenever you want. But for a fixed rate bond where you tie up your money, say, for one or two years. Um, the difference between the sort of the, the best buy for a postal and an online account was only 0.1%. I mean, that was... That is pretty good yeah. because there is a massive difference between uh, in the easy access market um, and you have to accept quite the interest rate cut if you want a postal account rather than one that's online, which lots of people have said is obviously um, quite harmful for older people typically who maybe aren't so internet savvy or don't want to have an app on their phone and don't really trust that. That's true. Um, I, I talked about my dad before on the podcast. So he he's he asked me ages ago to go. Like, where can I get a decent savings account? So I sort of said, "Oh, here, go to this bank." And he went there. And he came. We came back and said, "Oh, I'm not opening it because they, you can only open it online. I just don't trust it. I still don't trust online banking." So there are a lot of people doing it. But I mean, the post. I mean, just the idea of. Um, yeah, the post is still seen as a good channel for financial services. It's quite interesting because I, I used to get so much direct mail through the post, but don't seem to get anything. I mean, do you get post, Laura, apart from bills? I mean, this is No, not really. And even bills now, most of it's kind of online, isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
No, I get nothing. But I get very excited about post because I get it so rarely. So then I always think it's going to be something really exciting. I guess we all get parcels, don't we? From from you know online retailers is probably how most people get stuff through the post. All process. my constant ASOS orders. Yes. <laughs> Except I've curbed that habit. I haven't. I haven't ordered anything from ASOS for months now. Wow. I know. I realised that it was quite environmentally damaging. Is that really the reason, or is it just because you? Buying yeah, I'm, 10 also, pairs of trousers I'm also trying to save money, but <laughs> <laughs> the environment, Dan, mainly the environment. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I hijacked that a bit there. So tell me more about the, the postal account. So what rates can you actually get then? So this is from sort of late June. So this the rates may have changed by the time you listen to this. But um, so in terms of the best postal one-year bond is um, someone called the Access Bank, which pays 1.9%. So if you compare that to the online one from SmartSave, that's 2.01%. So I guess, you know, 1.9% for, for yeah. cash savings, it's not amazing, but it, it's, you know, relative terms, it's not, um, you know, it's better than I thought you would, you'd get from anything to do with the post. And then if you go to um, a, a three-year rate, the best one is from the Access Bank again, 2.35%. Um, and then uh, on a seven-year rate, is 2.75%, which is um, versus a 2.76% from online. I'm not sure, you know, we, we're seven years. Seven years seems like a scarily yeah, long time. Yeah, not sure anyone would want to lock up their cash for seven years. Obviously, what happens if interest rates go up in the, in the sort of those seven year, that seven year period, you could potentially be losing out big time, couldn't you? And there's much more competitive rates. But, um, but it's quite interesting, some of these names like SmartSave, Access Bank. Um, I've never heard of that. I was going to say, yeah. It, Bank and clients, Hodge Bank. Um, I, I don't know. I, I have definitely never heard of no. most of these ones. So I don't know whether these are um, small. I guess they're probably more smaller, more niche lenders who are still willing to do postal stuff. And I guess the logic of um, this being a more competitive market in the bond market, so the fixed rate accounts, um, fixed term accounts, sorry, rather than easy access. The logic of that, I guess, is that it's a bit more administrative work for the provider in the setup, but they know that that money is going to be locked up for a certain period of time, whereas they could go through the administrative rigmarole of opening up account by postal, and then you could deposit some money and then take it out two months later. And I guess that would be a quite large cost to them, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll perhaps take a look at some um, of the savings market in a future podcast because i think it's, it's it's quite a lot of stuff particularly i know there's a lot of people who still love to save money in cash um it's sort of understandably you shouldn't always put everything into the stock market so yeah but we'll, we'll take a look at um what sort of the current rates you can get in a, in a podcast coming up soon so thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have for future podcasts to podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we will see you next week. Thanks. Thanks Laura. Thanks Dan. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.